Have you ever felt let down by a leader, be it a boss, a politician, a famous person, someone who's a role model, a teacher, a parent, uh, could be anyone? I think we've all felt let down by a leader at some point, haven't we? Uh, We tend to have high expectations of our leaders, and that's not a bad thing. But sometimes our expectations are too high. We forget that they are only human. Uh, My dad is a brilliant father. Uh, uh, He still is. And uh, as a as a child, I held him to a very high standard. Uh, He'll probably be listening to this later on, so he might be hearing this for the first time. Um, Now, my dad's a very practical man. He can turn his hand to almost anything. And there were many occasions when I had a conversation with my dad when all I could see of him was a pair of legs sticking out from under the car. And uh, if something went a bit wrong under there, uh, the conversation would stop and maybe a a few choice words would come uh, flying out. Nothing too strong, just the occasional damn or blast on that level. Uh, I never heard him say uh, anything uh, worse than that. Until one day, I'm probably seven or eight, uh, we were driving along, just the two of us in the car, I was in the back seat, and somebody pulled out in front of us. And uh, I heard my dad use a swear word, and again, it wasn't one of the really bad ones, but it is one I'd never heard him say before. And I was shocked. And I felt strangely let down. I felt disappointed. And, and I went really quiet, and I remember my dad saying, are you right in the back there? And I said, yeah, I'm all right. And I didn't want to say what the matter was. Now, of course, I was holding my dad to an impossibly high standard a standard that no mere human being could live up to. But it's not just children who do that. I think adults do the same thing. I still follow the, the news in the, in the UK, and the politicians there have been lambasted by the press for their handling of COVID-19. And sometimes I watch those reports, and I think, well, this is a global pandemic. It kind of snuck up on us. It, 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 did, you know, it came about quite quickly. And they're just human beings trying to make very complex and difficult decisions. If we put all our trust in human beings and hold them to an impossibly high standard, of course, we're going to be let down uh, often. Of course, we should hold our leaders to account, and we ought to be rigorous about that. But at the same time, we need to remember that they are mere human beings. We seem to think that if our leaders make all the right decisions, then they can fix all of the world's problems, and they can't. And so we need to put our trust in one who is infinitely greater than any worldly leader, and we'll come to that in a a little while. But first, I want to recap where we've got to in the book of 1 Samuel. The the beginning of 1 Samuel is set at a time when Israel... Uh, was led by tribal leaders called judges. Samuel was the last of the judges, and uh, the elders of Israel came to Samuel and demanded a king. They wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations, which was a terrible call because Israel was supposed to be separate. They're supposed to be different from all the other nations. God was their king. But instead of putting their hope and their trust in God, they decided they needed a king to rule over them. But in spite of that terrible decision, which was tantamount to a complete rejection of God, 
God continued to love and care for his people and to work with them. It was God who chose Israel's first king. And that's what we're hearing about today. So in chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. He's wealthy. He's handsome. He's uh, exceptionally tall, a head taller than anybody else. Uh, In worldly terms, he sounds like a perfect choice. Uh, By the way, studies have shown that uh, tall people tend to be more successful in business and they tend to earn more money. Uh, So it shows that even in our culture, we've got an unconscious bias to tall, impressive-looking people. Uh, It's not very good news for me, but hey-ho, what can I do? (laughs) So Saul looks apart, but God chose him. So he must have other qualities as well, and we'll come to those. But first, I want to summarize chapters 9 to 12. So when Saul was a young man, his father lost some donkeys, don't know how, maybe someone left the gate open, they wandered off anyway. Saul and his servant had to go in search of these donkeys. And they don't see any sign of the donkeys, uh, but eventually they come to the town where Samuel the prophet lives. So they decide to go into the town to see if Samuel can help them in some way. And they meet some people on the outskirts of the town, but when they go into the town itself, the first person they meet is the prophet Samuel. Now, God had already told Samuel to expect the future king of Israel. So Samuel was looking out for Saul. And when they meet, they have a bit of a conversation. Samuel says, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. And then Samuel drops this massive hint. He says, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Actually, that's a bit more than a hint, isn't it? And Saul is taken aback. He basically says, why me? I'm a nobody. Anyway, Samuel invites Saul to a feast. He's given the place of honor at this feast. And the very next day, Samuel anoints Saul with oil, just the two of them like in a private ceremony, uh, thus affirming that Saul will one day be king of Israel. Uh, Before Saul gets on his way, Samuel tells him various things that will happen that day. But the most significant thing, he says, when you get home, you'll encounter a procession of prophets The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And that's what happened. It was part of our reading today. Sometime later, Samuel assembled all the people at Mizpah, Mizpah, and they went through the process of drawing lots to see who would be their king. Needless to say, the final lot fell to Saul. They looked around where Saul is nowhere to be seen, and they found him hiding in amongst the supplies. If you've ever suffered from stage fright, you can imagine probably how Saul felt. Uh, So Saul is pulled out of his hiding place and he's presented to the people and Samuel declares, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Uh, Initially, there were some doubters. They said, how can this fellow save us? Which I think is probably a fair question to ask of a man who's just been found hiding in the baggage. But it reveals also an impossibly high expectation. They want a king to save them. And the whole of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that only Jesus can save us. Anyway, They've never had a king before. They don't know the protocol. So uh, after this ceremony, they all just go home, including Saul. 
And sometime later, one of the cities, city of Jabesh, is besieged by the Ammonites, whereupon messengers are sent to Saul. And they find him coming out of the field after a day's work with his oxen. So he's just gone back to a very normal uh, life. Uh, When he finds out what happened, again we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And he raises an army of 330,000 soldiers and he goes off and he defeats the Ammonites. Now, after this victory, which was relatively minor in the overall scheme of things, Saul receives more or less universal approval and acceptance. Chapters 11, chapter 11, verse 12 says this. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? You remember those doubters? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. And it was Saul that said, no, uh, nobody's going to be killed today. This is a day that the Lord has uh, rescued Israel. So there's, you know, none of that going to happen. So everyone's delighted with Saul and they go to Gilgal to renew his kingship. So you can see that Saul becoming king was kind of a three-stage process. Firstly, um, he was anointed by Samuel, uh, just the two of them. Um, that showed Saul that he would one day be king. Uh, then there was the uh, ceremony at Mizpah, and that let the people know that Saul was God's choice as king. Uh, but then in Gilgal, not only was Saul affirmed as God's choice, but then he was also the people's choice. The people wanted Saul as their king. Uh, so now that Saul was undisputed king, Samuel takes a step back and he gives a farewell speech. It's quite a long speech and it occupies a whole chapter. Um, but the key point is this. He says, if you, the people, and your king obey God, then things will go well for you. But if you don't, you're going to get yourself into a world of trouble. And, and, and so chapter 12 ends as a bit of a cliffhanger. Will the king and his people stay close to God? Or will they reject God and throw the nation back into chaos? And at this stage, there's every reason to be hopeful. Saul has tremendous potential for, for two main reasons and nothing to do with his looks or his height. But before we get to that, I want you to think about the leaders you have encountered in your lifetime, specifically leaders in the workplace. Excuse me a second. Think about leaders you've had in the workplace. Firstly, think about the worst leader that you've ever had, and everybody's had a a bad boss or a bad leader in the workplace. What made him or her so bad? The chances are it was incompetence, pride, or a combination of both, but probably more to do with pride. They refused to listen. They treated others with contempt. Perhaps they were a bully. They couldn't admit when they were wrong. They got defensive and aggressive if ever they were challenged. That all stems from pride. It makes for very bad leadership. Now think of the best leader you've encountered. And chances are many of his or her qualities stemmed from humility. They listened. They treated you fairly. They stuck their neck out for the employees. They put others first. You felt uh, that they brought out the best in you. You wanted to follow them. You wanted to work hard. And that's all rooted in 
humility. And if you're a leader of any description, take note. But Saul was humble, at least to start with he was. It seems he was. Uh, We can see it right the way through this section of 1 Samuel. He went out searching for donkeys. That's not a glamorous task. Uh, And you know it was his servant who suggested uh, seeking out Samuel. And at that stage of the narrative, the servant seems to take more initiative than Saul himself. But Saul listened to his servant and carried out his suggestion. Now, Saul mistakenly and perhaps naively uh, thought that they'd have to pay Samuel for any, any information about the lost donkeys. And he says, well, we've got nothing to give him. And it's a servant who says, I'll pay. He had a, uh, a small amount of silver on him. Uh, and the fact that this servant was willing to use uh, money that Saul didn't even know he had, I think says a lot about the kind of relationship that Saul and his family had with their servants. <coughs> And then, of course, when Samuel hinted that Saul would be king, he said, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? In other words, I think you've got the wrong bloke. It can't be me that you're talking to here about being king. And, of course, when Samuel was chosen as king, sorry, when Saul was chosen as king, he was hiding because he was one of only two people, him and Samuel, who knew what was coming next. And you wouldn't expect that kind of timidity from a king. But it shows a certain innocence and humility. When the messengers went to King Saul to tell him about the siege of Jabesh, he was coming in from the field. And this is quite a beautiful picture of a king. Down to earth, humble, one of the people. We see another king with those qualities in the New Testament, don't we? Uh, Do you see how this is setting us up to to, to have an idea of what the perfect king should look like? We're beginning to see a faint outline. So Saul, in the first instance, he was humble. And when that basic humility is combined with the second attribute that's highlighted in these chapters, it makes the potential for a potent force for good. And the second attribute is not something that Saul has or does. It's something that's bestowed on him by God. We're twice told the spirit of the Lord was upon Saul. The first time was when he joined the procession of prophets in his hometown of Gibeah. And interestingly, just before that happens, it says God changed Saul's heart. Saul's heart had to be open to receive God's spirit. When he joined the procession of prophets, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he began to prophesy. Now, people often think that prophecy is to do with making accurate predictions about the future. And it can include an element of that. But but really, prophecy is God speaking through a person or people. God will often use a, a person as a mouthpiece to speak into a particular situation through prophecy. God can address the failings or encourage the virtues of an individual, a church, or a nation. Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The second occasion when the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on Saul was when he heard about the siege at Jabesh. And then this man, who didn't seem to have much confidence, dealt with a very tricky political and strategic situation And he dealt with it decisively and effectively. The Holy Spirit enabled Saul to do something that he otherwise didn't seem able to do. 
Now, today is Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate God's Spirit being poured out on his church for the first time. So it's appropriate that we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today. In the Old Testament, we hear of certain people being filled with God's Spirit, or God's Spirit came upon them. Usually happened to leaders and the, the judges, kings, prophets. Uh, God worked through these people to accomplish his purposes. But when we look at the timeline of the Old Testament, these instances of people being filled with the Spirit or God's Spirit coming upon them were relatively few and far between. On the day of Pentecost that we're celebrating today, all the believers, all of Jesus' followers, were filled with the Holy Spirit. When a person is filled with God's Spirit, God literally takes up residence within that person. Writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You've heard that expression, you're My body is a temple. Well, this is literally where it comes from. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about what happened to Saul when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And notice it doesn't say that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The the New Testament uses that term uh, a lot. Um, It's not used here, so maybe this was a temporary thing in his case. But when the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, he was able to prophesy. Prophecy is one of many gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are available to the church today. We believe that we should use those gifts to um, build up, encourage, and strengthen the church. And that makes this church... uh, Charismatic by definition. We believe in using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. On the other occasion, when God's Spirit came upon Saul, he was able to do things that he wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. He wouldn't have had the courage or the ability to do those things, namely defeating the Ammonites. And the same is true for us. Now, we don't have to go and defeat the Ammonites or anything of the sort, but God's Spirit will enable us to fulfill the role that Jesus has given us in his church. Jesus has given each and every one of us a role in his church, and the Spirit will enable us to fulfill that role. So I want to encourage you. Keep asking the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. If you know and love Jesus, God's Spirit is within you, but the New Testament tells us to go on being filled by God's Spirit. It's a bit like, this balloon. If I blow some air into it, I'll blow some air into it. Now we could say that this balloon is full, couldn't we? I mean, there's no part of this balloon that is not filled with air, but it's not full to capacity. If I keep blowing air into it, it's going to keep expanding. Um, obviously, the analogy breaks down because if I eventually that balloon will burst, it will explode, and you don't see exploding Christians all over the place. Um, It's a crude analogy, but what I'm trying to say is, as Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but I think we can always receive more of God's Spirit. So back to Saul. 
He's just been made king and things are looking hopeful. He's humble and the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Israel's hope is focused on this new king. And therein lies the problem. Because we've actually seen the best of Saul. These chapters 9 to 12 track his ascendancy, his his rise to the pinnacle of his career. And it's looking pretty hopeful. But things go downhill fast from here. And we'll be reading about this in following weeks. Um, <laughs> but at his best, Saul gives us a, a hazy picture, a faint outline of the kind of king that Israel and indeed the world needs. One who is humble and upon whom the spirit of God rests. The whole of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus like a big arrow. These chapters have pointed us in the direction of true kingship. They bring us to the point of wanting a really good king to emerge. There's this excitement around this first king, Saul, but he goes off the rails. So we want this really good king to emerge. Uh, Israel, of course, were hoping that it would have been Saul. But no human being can fulfill the role of king and saviour, not to Israel and certainly not to the whole of creation. Much of the Old, Tem- em- much of the Old Testament emphasises man's inability to lead wisely and well. Israel had high hopes for their first king and for kingship in general, but as we'll see in the following weeks, their hope was misplaced. The world is in a mess, and if our ultimate hope for a better world lies in the ability of human beings to fix it, then we will become increasingly disappointed, disillusioned, and frustrated. We have very high expectations of our leaders. And if those expectations extend to fixing all the world's problems, then we are holding them to an impossibly high standard. They are, after all, mere human beings. Should our leaders aim to make the world a better place? Absolutely. Can our leaders make the world a better place? In a limited way, yes, of course. But there is only one king who can heal, restore, and redeem creation, and his name is Jesus. He is the only king or ruler who will surpass all our hopes and expectations of kingship. So let's worship him. Let's bow the knee to to Jesus today. Let's give him our allegiance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can see where these chapters point us. Israel wanted a king, but they chose a mere human being who ultimately let them down very badly. We recognize that we need a king. We need someone to follow. We need a savior. And we know that your son Jesus is the only one who fits the bill. And so we pray that... uh, will continue to welcome Jesus into our hearts, that you'll continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might take our place within your church. We pray, Lord, that you'll continue to change and transform us 
as we hopefully await the second coming of Christ, the return of the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.